You're listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cochrane, Alberta. If you'd like more information about our church, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.covenantpresbyterian.ca. Today we're going to continue in Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. And today, uh, what we want to do, we want to kind of further continue on in the passage. So this isn't a kind of a redo from last week's uh, sermon, even though we're going to cover part of the same text and move on. What we want to do is want to build on what Pastor Chris said last week and continue to explore the dialogue. Kind of like if we're on a hike or uh, on a climb, that we would continue on to kind of further explore the mountain, so to speak, or uh, see more of what there is. And so with that, I just kind of want to start just like last week by looking at uh, verses 23. Chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. So with that, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And here we see, um, here Jesus is going to diagnose what our true need is. That what's truly gone wrong with us and what's truly at, at fault in the world isn't just the stuff that's going on out there, but the true problem and what we truly need fixed is uh, from within us. And uh, with that, as John ordered his, uh, his gospel account about the life of Jesus, he'll move on from showing us that the problem is uh, from within our heart, from within us, to going on to showing what the solution is. So with that, let's read today's passage, which is uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And with that, uh, let's just open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that you have brought us together here. Dear Lord, pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear what, what you say within, uh, within your word. Help it to, uh, to sink in. Help it to shape the way that we see the world around us and the way we interact with, uh, with those around us. Lord, pray that um, you give me the words to speak. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So uh, within this passage, as I mentioned, what Jesus is going to do, he, he's going to move from uh, saying what's, what's wrong with people, what our true need is, from diagnosing that, to showing us what the, what the solution is. And uh, with that, what Jesus says is that in order to enter the kingdom of God, we need to be born again. And uh, this is where Jesus will start to confront the expectations of Nicodemus the Pharisee. Now, Nicodemus, as a Jewish man, 
would have expected that he would have a place in the coming kingdom of God by virtue of his ethnicity. So one thing of the time is that uh, Jewish men particularly and Jews in general thought that because of their ethnicity that they were good with God. That because uh, by virtue of being the children of Abraham that they automatically had a, had a pass. And uh, what Jesus is going to say that what Nicodemus needs is to be born again in order to enter God's kingdom. Now, Pastor Chris last week, last week touched on the idea of being born again, or the fancy theological term is called regeneration. But what I want to do this morning is to explore this a little bit more by what Jesus means to be born again, and to particularly dive into that in light of the illustrations that Jesus himself will use to talk about this. So today we're actually going to have a two-point sermon for those of you who are familiar with me. You guys know I like three, uh, but today we're going to I'm going to try to pare myself down to two, so please bear with me, and we hope this isn't uh, done too fast. So um, the two points are, what does Jesus mean by uh, the water and the spirit, and what does Jesus mean by the wind? So that let's pick up in verse 3, and I just want to define what Jesus does mean when he says uh, the kingdom of God. So, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, as for those of you who are familiar with the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the Synoptic Gospels. And um, what they clearly identify is that the kingdom, that it's, it's come, that in Jesus it has started. So we see that the kingdom of God is both the here and now present rule of God, um, rule and reign of Jesus over his people in the world as God's people continue to grow out and as the church grows. But there's also... Um, kind of the consummation or the fulfillment of what this, of what this means, which is when uh, Jesus will rule over all peoples and kingdoms, that, there is, uh, that this is kind of the uh, both now and yet to come, that the kingdom is both in a sense here where Jesus is ruling over his people and that it will continue to grow as we saw in our Advent reading from Daniel chapter 2, where it will continue to grow until it encompasses... Um, all nations, tribes, tongues, and kingdoms. Now, the kingdom of God is kind of one of those really complex things that we could literally do a whole sermon series on, and one of these days we might, but we'll see. Uh, now, the next thing that I just kind of want to draw your attention to is when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, uh, this is Jesus kind of reflecting upon, or Jesus saying that it's by his own authority. Truly, truly is kind of like a, a way of saying this, is, this isn't based on something that someone else has said. Because at the time, most rabbis or the Pharisees, what they would do is they would, they would uh, base their authority on what many other rabbis have already said. They would say, you know, in light of what these other 10 rabbis have said, this is what I'm saying, and it's well within the tradition. This is well within uh, what's already been commonly accepted. But Jesus isn't saying, truly, truly, he's saying, this is on my own authority. And this is one of the claims uh, or ways that Jesus is unique. In which Jesus says, um, what you've kind of based uh, everything on in, in your myriad of teachers, uh, that's irrelevant because what I'm going to do is I'm going to say this uh, on the basis of my own authority, not on the basis of, of your own kind of man-made traditions. So with that, uh, in, he's going to continue on. Uh, let's pick up in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. So on my own authority, I'm telling you this is, this is true. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, by saying uh, born of water and the spirit, it, it's one of these things that, that's kind of cryptic or um, to us it can seem as something that is a little bit more difficult to understand. But there's a, a few different ways that this has kind of been interpreted throughout the history of the church from many different Bible teachers. So what I just want to do quickly is to kind of take a peek at what some of those options are and just kind of evaluate, hey, does this fit or does this not fit? So one of the uh, common interpretations of what does Jesus mean by water is that this is a reference to uh, the Christian baptism. Now, I personally don't think that that fits because it would be meaningless to Nicodemus. This is something that uh, for Nicodemus, it, he would have no comprehension of what that means. Second of all, it would make back, baptism a requirement for entering into the kingdom of God or uh, for salvation, which isn't the case as is clearly seen by Jesus with the thief on the cross, right? The thief on the cross was never baptized. And yet Jesus said, um, you will be with me in, in paradise. That uh, Jesus is saying uh, that this is somebody who, who will be in the kingdom of God, but this is someone who obviously never had the opportunity to be baptized as a Christian. Um, this particular view that you are required to be baptized in order to, to be a Christian, this is something that's held by, for example, Roman Catholics. They would say that as you are baptized, that that's when the Spirit comes in and regenerates you. The fancy term for this is called baptismal regeneration. Now, I think that kind of goes against the whole flow of this because... Um, if water were to mean Christian baptism, it put the emphasis on us and what we do prior to the working of the Spirit or prior to God's work in us, which the rest of the passage so clearly emphasizes. Because uh, the rest of the passage is going to very clearly show that this whole working within us, this is something that God does and that um, the rest of the discussion here with Nicodemus doesn't actually mention baptism again. Another option is that uh, this is a reference to the baptism of John, which is also kind of a position that's been held by many throughout church history. And I don't think this works because it presupposes a popularity, a level of popularity of John's baptism that uh, just the mere mention of the word water would automatically cause Nicodemus to think, okay, this is John's baptism. I think this kind of goes far beyond what is uh, reasonable of the text. That while we know that John was popular, both from the New Testament and from other historical sources, to say that is going far beyond what we can reasonably presume of the text. And as with Christian baptism, it, it would mean that, it, that John's baptism would be required in order to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, as John's baptism was uh, superseded, so to speak, uh, by Christian baptism, we once again run to the idea that in order to enter into God's kingdom or to be saved, we would need to be baptized, which isn't true, uh, that this isn't something that we do, rather this is something that uh, God does for us. So for what I do think it means, that if we remember back uh, a couple weeks ago when we talked about, okay, how do we, what are some guidelines or what are some principles for how we interpret the Bible? The first is we want to kind of understand what did the original audience, so the people in this dialogue understand Jesus to mean, what did John's audience understand. So what did, uh, what did John have his audience think of when, when they were going to hear this passage? 
And uh, I think a very helpful hint is that John expected his audience to think of this in light of the Old Testament. So if we, this is kind of obvious from the fact that as it continues on, uh, John expects his audience to, to know what he's talking about when he mentions uh, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. For most of it, that's kind of like a term we kind of have to think back to the Old Testament and think back, okay, what did this mean, right? Um, whereas John expected this to kind of just be an obvious reference to his audience. So for example, here today, uh, if I were to say, okay, what book did this come from? Uh, by show of hands, who's, who's familiar with it? I'm not expecting too many hands. Uh, but what John is trying to do is he's trying to get his original audience to think back of this in light of the Old Testament. And I think the, the clearest way to, to think of this is uh, in light of Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. Which if uh, any of you have it here, you can feel free to turn to it. If not, I've got it here as well. So, uh, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from your, all your idols I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your, from your flesh and give you a heart, sorry, a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. So what is... What John's trying to get us to think of, he's trying to get us to think in terms of Ezekiel, which is uh, a recognition that there's an uncleanness that separates us from God and that we need, we need to be uh, washed clean. Uh, if you want a more contemporary, very popular example, is from the song uh, called The River. It's, it's a song from Eminem and Ed Sheeran's kind of featured on it. Obviously, there's some language issues. Eminem is not a Christian, in case anyone was wondering. But there's a recognition within the song uh, as the chorus goes, sung by Ed Sheeran. I've been a liar, been a thief, been a lover, been a cheat. All my sins need holy water. Feel it washing over me. There's a recognition that that which we do which is wrong, the sins that we commit, that those, that those have a staining quality to us, that those uh, mark us, they defile us. And that what we, what we need is we need to be washed clean. And... Uh, as the song illustrates, there's a recognition of that, that there's something that's gone wrong with us. And then with uh, Ezekiel's quotation, there's a, there's a recognition that something from within us, from something from our very being, uh, needs to change. Now, when the, when the Bible uses the term heart, we, we generally tend to think of heart in terms of uh, modern anatomy, right? We think of, uh, of the heart as the muscle which pumps the blood throughout the body. They had an understanding of the heart, of that being which is at the of being the core of who you are. So your heart isn't just an organ, isn't just something that pumps blood, but your heart is the very center of who you are. But the very core of your being, and what God is telling his people, Gesundheit, is that uh, what's gone wrong <laughs> is that we need a new heart, that the very core of who we are needs to be renewed, that we need, uh, we need to be washed, that God's the one who needs to do the washing, that our own kind of attempts to cleanse ourselves aren't enough. But we need, we need God to, uh, to wash us, to give us a new heart so that we can live a new life. And the way that, um, to show the radical nature of this, the, the whole new way of, 
of being new. Ezekiel will continue on from, verse, from chapters 36 to in chapter 37, talking about uh, the valley of dry bones. When uh, the word of God, when it ends up bringing these, uh, these old skeletons back to life, how these old skeletons, how they're going to be, uh, how they're going to be made new, how it's going to be from someone who's dead to someone who's new. The New Testament also ends up using similar illustrations, talking about in Ephesians 2, how we're dead to sin, how then we're made alive to God by the working of God within us. Uh, if you want an example from church history, there's this great story from St. Augustine. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with St. Augustine, he's one of... Uh, his book, The Confessions, is one of my all-time favorites. I'd highly encourage anyone and everyone to read it. But with, uh, one of the stories of St. Augustine is that, uh, for those of you who don't know, he was maybe a little bit promiscuous in his youth. Uh, and then when he ends up becoming a Christian, he ends up having a, a whole new outlook on life. He ends up living a whole new life in light of him having a new heart. And uh, as the story goes, Augustine goes back to this particular town where he had these relations with this uh, particular woman. And she hears that Augustine's back. So she comes out to meet him and she says, uh, hi. And he kind of sloughs it off, doesn't really give her any attention. Uh, so then she says, hi again. Again, Augustine doesn't kind of take the bait. And uh, when Augustine's ready to leave, she says, Augustine, don't you recognize me? It is I. And as the story goes, Augustine turns around and he says, but it is not I. So what Augustine is saying, that even though uh, this is me, this is the same uh, Augustine, so to speak, uh, now that I have a new heart, it's almost like I'm a whole new, uh, a whole new person. And that's what the, the powerful nature in which Ezekiel is talking about, how we are cleansed, we have a new heart, that the very center of our being is now made new, that it's almost as if we were a new person, or as John would put it, that we are born again. Then as the text continues in verses 6 and 7, uh, that which is flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. So as we've, uh, as we've seen that from Ezekiel, that the water it's talking about is the water that God washes uh, us in, cleanses us from our sins, that the Spirit is... Uh, us having a new heart and that the Spirit of God is now going to live within us in a whole new way, causing us to live whole new lives. And uh, verses 6 and 7 illustrates that this isn't something that we do. By, by talking about flesh, uh, this is talking about the way that we commonly live life, that this isn't just a way in which uh, we go about, this isn't something that we strive to achieve, this isn't something that we strive to do, that... Uh, what a spirit must be born of the spirit. This is God's working within us. That this is all of God's doing. Uh, the fancy theological term would be uh, monergistic, right? That this is a one-sided action of God within our lives. And then uh, as we get to point two, uh, when it mentions the wind, uh, verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So, the wind, this, uh, this is a reference to, uh, this is once again God's doing. That there's no part of it which is us striving, us seeking to achieve this, us trying to earn God's favor. Rather, uh, God is at work within this. Now, kind of one of the obvious questions 
is, uh, if this is all God's doing, why isn't everyone saved? Right? That's kind of the obvious next question. And uh, as we see from Ephesians chapter 1, it mentions that uh, the reason why God saves anyone is that, is that it's all for the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, that the reason why God saves us uh, is to show how, how great and how marvelous he is. Now the question is, uh, what about those who aren't saved? I think Romans 9 is, uh, is rather clear on this. Uh, and as I'm just going to read Romans 9, starting in verse 14. Uh, what shall we then say? Is there injustice on God's part? And the question is uh, for why he doesn't save everyone. And it says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that by my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whomever he wills. Will you then say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Which is the obvious question. And then uh, the response is, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say back to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? What if God desires to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Uh, so the reason why kind of obvious uh, reason that Paul gives for why uh, not everyone saved is because God is, uh, we in our sin, we've all gone astray. We've all sinned against God and that God is now uh, gracious in showing some of us uh, for mercy by, by uh, regenerating people, by uh, causing people to be born again by the working of his spirit, that we are, uh, we're to show how great God is and that for those who, uh, who aren't, that uh, that would be God's justice, that God's justice might also be shown. I think the amazing part of, of this whole thing, of why God saves anyone, is that it isn't that God wouldn't save everyone, but rather that God saves anyone. When we recognize uh, who we are and how great God is, when we see how great and glorious our God is, that him coming in, into the world, him uh, showing that, that level of love and humility, that he is rescuing anyone at all. Uh, that's what I think is the most amazing fact of, this whole, of the whole situation. Now, just to come back, what does it mean uh, to be born again? I, I think with that, the, uh, the big idea is that in order to enter God's kingdom, we must be born again by which God cleanses us that he washes us clean from our, from our sin and defilement, that he gives us a new heart and places his spirit within us to do his will and um, to live new lives. So when Jesus says you must be born again, that's what he's meaning. We need, uh, we need a new heart, so we need to be made new from the center of our being. This isn't just something that we, uh, we strive after, but this is God's doing. Just like we didn't choose to be born or 
we don't get to kind of decide uh, when that happens. Uh, similarly, God's the one who, who is the one who uh, causes us to be born again. And just as the wind blows uh, where it blows, so the Spirit of God um, is at work, and he's the one who draws people to himself. So with that, how do we live in light of this passage? Right? How, how, does this, how are we called to live in light of this? This is something that uh, can seem kind of like fancy uh, theological terms, some high-sounding high principles. I think first and foremost, this is a grounds for humility and worship. That if God saves us, then this isn't something that we can boast in or that we ought to look down on others. Rather, uh, being born again is something that ought to lead us to worship God. Second of all, I think this is ground for uh, humble apologetics and evangelism. Since it isn't in our power to convert anyone, um, it isn't on us to kind of cause anyone to be born again. It isn't up to us to kind of close the deal, so to speak. Rather, uh, there's a quote from this famous apologist by the name of Greg Bonson, where uh, he ends up saying that it's our job to close, to close the mouths of the unbelievers. So we're called to give honest answers. We're, we're called to give uh, good answers to the objections that people have. And it's the Spirit's role to open up their hearts. So uh, what we ought to do is we ought to prayerfully be hoping that the Lord would open the hearts of those who we are uh, evangelizing or talking to in an apologetic context that our evangelism ought to be urgent in its call but yet patient in our expectation of somebody else that it isn't up to us to kind of uh, have that silver bullet to answer all the questions and then expect them to uh, to come to Jesus so to speak but rather it's we ought to be patient and hope and pray that the spirit would be at work in someone's lives uh, next is ought to be grounds to pray for others that our posture that we ought to have in evangelism is one of prayer, that it would be one in which we would, uh, we would pray that the Lord would open the hearts of others, that we might have the joy of seeing God miraculously work in people's lives by causing them to be born again. And last of all, if you aren't a Christian or you're not sure kind of where you stand with this, uh, this is something that should lead you to pray and not to strive. That as we've seen that being born again isn't something that we do. This is something that we manufacture. Uh, it's not kind of a checklist that you go through or uh, hoping you kind of earn God's favor. What this should do is this should cause you uh, to pray that God would give you a new heart or that God would uh, make it clear to you as far as where you stand and that you would uh, cry out for the mercy of God rather than trying to accomplish um, this, that, or the other thing. And so that let's uh, just kind of close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it isn't up to us to accomplish. It isn't up to us to, uh, to earn your favor or to uh, follow through the steps to be born again. Rather, this is something that you do. Dear Lord, thank you that you have been kind and gracious to us. Dear Lord, we pray that you would pour out that same mercy uh, on those around us that uh, we would have the joy as we talk to others about you, as we uh, give witness to who you are, as we strive to be lights in our community, that we would get the joy of seeing uh, your spirit uh, transforming, transforming others, get, taking people's hearts of stone and giving them hearts of flesh. Dear Lord, um, pray that this would lead us to, to live humble lives by which we would recognize that all that we have 
comes from you and is a good and gracious gift from you. And so, dear Lord, uh, we pray that this would shape the way we see those around us and it would uh, change the way we interact with others. It's your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.